Sherlock Holmes, English-speaking vernacular. Help save Fu Manchu, Moriarty and Dracula. Surfing the old ways from being abused. Protecting the new ways for me and for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Studying Granada, a podcast where I, Mike Knoll, a fan but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes stories, and specifically the 1980s Granada television series, have somehow tricked my friend Jackson Eflin, <laughs> a relative neophyte in both instances, uh, into watching the show and reading the stories. Jackson, hello. Hi, I'm Jackson. I don't know a lot about Sherlock Holmes, but I know about a season's worth. <laughs> uh, give or take six episodes. Yeah. So, Jackson, this week we are wrapping up Season 1 of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with The Blue Carbuncle. Mm. It's one of those that I think people w- would have heard of. I, If I were to sit down and re- somebody said, write down like the Sherlock Holmes stories you think everybody will have heard of, The Blue Carbuncle would be on the list. Mm-hmm. It, it's not, maybe not everybody, but, you know, like it, it, if it was a family feud thing of, you know, how many people would have said The Blue Carbuncle or whatever, I think that most people could pull that one out eventually, but right. Partially because like carbuncle isn't a word we run into very much, so it's kind of a like it stands out a bit more. So, um, what did you think of this one? I think the story isn't that gripping, but the episode is pretty good. I think mm-hmm. they, this is another one where they do a really good job of taking a story that only kind of works and turning it into one that really zings, really, mm-hmm. really pops, really crinkles your tinsel. Okay, really. Milks your goose. All right, that's enough. <laughs> really cars your uncle. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that, and we'll get into this, obviously, as we go through the story, uh, or the at least the synopsis. Unlike the Speckled Band or the week before with the Crooked Man, the, there's not a lot of investigating. They go, like, one place, they talk to one guy, they go to a different place, talk to another guy, and then they, talk to, they basically happen to find this third guy that they then talk to and finish the mystery. It's not really investigating, it's just kind of... Or it is, I guess, technically investigating, but it's not, like, looking for clues and walking sideways in a very particular manner across the lawn looking for (laughs) footprints. Yeah, this is much more of a, like... They basically go to a person, ask questions, get the next lead, go to that person, ask questions, get the next lead, and it's kind of a just walking back a chain of events. Which Uh, isn't a bad thing, but it's not as, like... It's not as gripping as it as some things could be, but I mean, yeah, they do, they do what they can. All right. Well, with thoughts out of the way, Jackson, let's get to the synopsis. The Countess Morcar gets home a little early, and her servants all scramble to get the house ready for her early return, including the bellhop or whatever, mm-hmm. turning away the plumber. However, moments after she gets home, she screams loudly because. It's a diamond type thing. Inspector Bradstreet arrests John Horner, the plumber, because he's the most logical person to have taken the gem. Meanwhile, Commissioner Peterson comes to seek advice from Holmes because he found a goose and a hat left by a drunk man who was roughed up on the street, and he hopes to get them back to him. Holmes does his thing and figures out who they belong to, only for Commissioner Peterson to return to say that the goose that Holmes let him keep had the blue carbuncle inside of it. I like that in the story um, and in the episode that Holmes is just like, 
oh yeah you can have it i mean it's not really evidence i suppose yeah but he's just like yes take this goose thank you that's fine and also then in the story in in the show by this point the countess has put out a 1000 pound reward for the return of the blue carbuncle because when peterson returns they're like that's a thousand pounds and then he just keeps repeating a thousand pounds thousand pounds thousand pounds Mm -hmm. which is a lot of money at this point in time for us a thousand bucks is like a month or two worth of rent, but the further people was fast enough to buy, I don't know, Madagascar. <laughs> Famously, historically, <laughs> Madagascar could be bought for a thousand pounds in the 1880s. Yep, that's, that's how much it costs. Big price tag on it. Anyway, so I looked up one bit of this. We do actually see the blue carbuncle before anything else. We The episode opens on mm-hmm. blue carbuncle on a black background, and then in the reflections of the gem, we see it's sorted history of crime from being dragged out of a river and then somebody murders that person for it and someone steals it from that person someone else kills that person for it until it finally winds up in the hands of the countess of morker which that was a really cool sequence of events it was a really nice like Mm -hmm. it gave the gave gravitas to this jewel beyond just it's a cool jewel yeah and they referenced later the bloody history of the blue carbuncle but here they're using it I know, like, and this is the thing I wanted to talk about is the way that they use their time, specifically in this episode. But I think we've kind of touched on it in other episodes. This story is in the first volume of stories, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. It's one of the first. I, know, I think it's like maybe number eight or nine on down the list. It's, but it's there at the beginning, and in the stories, Watson is married and doesn't live on Baker Street, so it's him popping in or Holmes showing up at his house, like in um, the Speckled Band, I believe, or no, the Crooked Man. I'm sorry. Mm. And the story or the show is trying to do as faithful an adaptation as they can, while also trying to cut this aspect of the canon out so far, because they haven't done the sign of four where Watson meets and marries uh, his wife. So. This one, they just, like, kind of had to get Watson out of the house for a little bit. And they had him go pick up packages or something, or the mail, whatever. It's not terribly important what the reason he's gone. But I like that, much like this, where they said, well, we've got the opening credits. We've got to burn, like, I don't know, a minute at the most. They're like, well, why don't we show, like, already set up that this gym, like, people are killing for it and stealing it and all that stuff. And then with Watson... When he's gone, that's when Peterson comes in and tells Holmes and the viewer the story. And it's just a good use of the time. Like, while they're trying to hold as loyally as they can to, well, for this scene to work, we need Watson to come in and Holmes already know the thing and be studying this hat. We can use that time to set this up elsewhere so that it's not just Holmes talking to us, like in the story, like regaling us with what Peterson told him for, you know, 15 straight minutes. The show wants to be relatively faithful to the story, but not. But they understand that the that being faithful isn't about maintaining exactly who says what. It's about ma- maintaining the flow of information and events. And they're really good at labeling that out to the right people, so everybody kind of gets to do their own thing, so that you have a a nice evenly spread load of who's doing what kind of work. As we kind of mentioned, uh, Watson's out getting packages, which I assume were like presents for christmas Mm -hmm. because this is a christmas episode and i as someone who loves christmas the kind of the the festivities of it the songs the trappings i appreciate that that 
all throughout this episode, you have like holly leaves strewn up everywhere and Christmas carols happening as, tra- as transition songs and people just kind of being merry in the snow. It was nice. Anyway, uh, happy Christmas and or Thanksgiving and or Halloween, depending on when this came out. Yes. Merry holiday. Uh, yeah. Uh, happy Earth Day. Yep. Yep, that. Um, anyway, so this jewel is stolen and uh, we should probably get into the hat stuff. Yeah. So Watson has come back to Holmes staring at this hat and we have kind of the traditional like Holmes introductory deduction stuff, which in the story is how the whole thing begins, but here it's pushed down a bit so we can kind of get the front matter out of the way with stealing the gem and all that jazz. And Holmes is like... You know my methods. What do you yourself gather as to the individuality of the man who has worn this particular article? It was accompanied by a goose, Watson. For Mrs. Henry Baker was printed upon a small card attached to the bird's left leg. Well, apart from the initials inside, H.B., presumably Henry Baker, I can see nothing. On the contrary, Watson, you can see everything. But you fail to reason from what you see. You are too timid in drawing your inferences. Then, pray, tell me what it is that you can infer from that hat. That the man is highly intellectual is, of course, obvious. And also that he was fairly well-to-do within the past three years, although now he has followed upon evil days. He had foresight but less now than formerly, pointing to a moral retrogression, which, when taken with a decline in his fortunes, seems to indicate an evil influence. Probably drink. This may account also for the fact that his wife has ceased to love him. My dear Holmes. He has, however, retained some degree of self-respect. Now, he leads a sedentary life. Is out of training entirely. He's middle-aged, has grizzled hair, which he has had cut within the last few days, and which he anoints with lime cream. It is also highly improbable that he has uh, gas laid on in his house. <laughs> yeah, well, now you are certainly joking. Not in the least. Well, I have no doubt that I'm very stupid. For example, how do you deduce that the man is intellectual? It is a question of cubic capacity. A man with so large a head must have something in it. Well, the decline in his fortunes, then? These flat brims with the curled edges came in three years ago. It is a hat of the very best quality, Watson. Look at the band of ribbed silk and the excellent lining. If this man could afford so expensive a hat three years ago and has had no hat since, then he has assuredly gone down in the world. What about the foresight? The moral retrogression? Ah, here is the foresight. These securers are never sold upon hats. If this man ordered one, it is a sign of a certain amount of foresight, since he went out of his way to take precaution against the wind. But as you see that he has broken the elastic and has not troubled to replace it, a weakening nature... Mm. 
The further point that he is middle-aged, that his hair is grizzled, that it has been cut recently, and that he anoints it with lime cream can all be gathered by an inspection of the lower part of the lining, Watson, and witness the moisture. Obviously a free perspirer. Therefore, not in the best of training. But his... his wife... You said she had ceased to love him. This hat has not been brushed for weeks. When I see a man with a week's accumulation of dust upon his hat, and his wife has allowed him to go out in such a state, I fear that he has been unfortunate enough to lose his wife's affections. But he might be a bachelor. Nay, but he brought a goose as a peace offering to his wife. Remember the card attached to the bird's leg? Yes. Well, you have an answer to everything. Just a minute, just a minute. How do you deduce that there is no gas laid on in his house? One tallow candle stain, or even two might come by chance, but when I see Watson, no less than five. He never got candle stains from a gas jet, Watson. Are you satisfied? Well, it's all very ingenious. I just, I love the way, because we always talk about Jeremy Brett. And I, I want to talk about David Burke in this one especially. And it, much like in The Dancing Men with the South African securities thing, he does this great job of the look on his face is just like, okay, this time you're blowing it out your ass. Like this time, that's too far. You can't, there's no way, like you're messing with me. Whereas Ashton Kutcher, I know that I'm getting punked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I thought that joke would go over a lot better. Um, oh, wait, is... Is Ashton Kutcher the guy from Punked or the next the guy who plays uh, Watson? Are you asking me if Ashton Kutcher is playing Watson? I don't I don't know who Ashton Kutcher is, but I know the punk is a thing. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> um, no, but I, just, I love the way David Burke plays this Watson who's like in awe of his friend, mm. but also half the time is like, this time you're messing with me. Now you're just making it up. Mm-hmm. And then whenever he gets like proven wrong, it's always like, this one we get a little bit of like, not frustration, but like, all right. Exasperation? Maybe? Yeah, like re- a little bit of like resigned exasperation of like, all right, you're that good. Like there's a part of Watson hoping like, okay, that's too far. This time he's really making it up. And when he's not, it's like, damn. Like in this episode, there's a bit where they eventually meet the guy who owns the hat. We'll get to that later. And Watson directly asks him, oh, uh- by the way, do you have gas laid on in your house? Gas? Alas, no. And Watson's like, Charlie good. <laughs> and the guy looks at him like, what? <laughs> Although, to be fair, um, and this, is, this ties into like a thing I don't think is in the episode, but it's in the story where Sherlock says, if it scrolls fast enough, you bastard machine, um, uh, my name is Sherlock Holmes, it's my business to know what other people don't know. I missed that line, which I do like. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very good Sherlock line. Oh, speaking of very good Sherlock, um, Mrs. Hudson wakes him up from bed, and so we have a good like scene or two of Sherlock just lounging around in like his pajamas with his hair like mm-hmm. undone, and it's like, mm, wow, uh, you give me the vapors over here, Jeremy Brett. Just more messy Sherlock Holmes. In the story, they also describe like when Watson comes in, him like lounging on this couch, looking at the hat, and I for me somehow I imagine much more of like he's sitting sideways on a couch, like propped up with like legs. I don't know for some reason I imagine this very like almost seductive home scene, and I blame you for that. <laughs> yes, good, but yeah. 
So I think that's uh, to cover everything with we need to do for the plot there. Um, I want there's one thing real quick, uh, sure. and that's with the hat. Watson, like when he comes in, I suppose that homely as it looks, that thing has some deadly story linked to it. That is the clue which will guide you in the solution of some mystery and the punishment of some crime. <laughs> and I love at this point that like to to sort of bastardize a Freud quote, a hat can't just be a hat when it's when Sherlock Holmes is involved. Like Watson comes in and sees him looking at this hat and it's like, well, this must be something very important to like a very serious crime. And Holmes is just like It is just one of those whimsical little incidents that will occur when you have Four million people all jostling each other within the space of a few square miles. I think here we see kind of the division between Watson's interest in these cases and Sherlock's interest in these cases. Because mm-hmm. for Sherlock, it's, I want to solve puzzles. I, I want that stimulation. Whereas for Watson, it's like, I want the sensation of crime and murder and theft and embezzlement and mm. uh, for his, scandals and stuff. For his um, uh, meretricious stories, as Holmes calls them. Exactly. And so... and. Like, they're both interested in kind of the same general thing, but Watson is like, ooh, can I turn this into another piece, basically? And, yeah. Um, It's kind of the difference between what Watson wants and what Holmes wants. The difference between, like, stakes and stimulation. Stakes and stimulation. It's my new uh, sexy vampire hunter RPG. Oh, good. (laughs) Um, Very excited about that, uh, to eventually hunts jeremy brett who is clearly a vampire in disguise i mean honestly yeah if i if i ever do write that jeremy brett is going to be the inspiration for the villain actually getting into it um this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but we'll get there later jeremy brett in this episode is very clearly like a dragon who has chosen to be to take the form of a british detective for his own inscrutable reasons in this episode like there's this whole bit where he like is considering this gem with the same kind of fascination that Smaug talks about his hoard or that Gollum talks about his precious. It's mm-hmm. like, and the, the lighting is low and you know, the flickering fire and it's Jeremy Brett's uh, ASMR tones talking about murder and suicide over this gem. Just see how it glints and sparkles. Of course, it is a nucleus and focus of crime. Every good stone is. They are the devil's pet baits. In the larger and older jewels, every facet may stand for a bloody deed. It was found in the banks of the Amoy River in southern China and is remarkable in having every characteristic of the carbuncle, save that it is blue instead of ruby red. This stone is not yet 20 years old. Hmm. In spite of its youth, it already has a sinister history. There have been two murders, a vitriol throwing, a suicide, and several robberies brought about for the sake of this 40-grain weight of crystallized charcoal. The gem has this almost, because of the way people talk about it, it has this almost supernatural quality to it. This, like, it's like one hair's breadth away from being having an actual like mind-affecting ability, which is really cool, and I like how they kind of add this tiny bit of... It's like they're they're almost saying this is a cursed gem without really saying it directly, mm-hmm. and I like that. I think that was a really good way to frame that. Find yourself a significant other who will look at you the way Jeremy Brett looks at the blue carbuncle. God, right? That's basically what Jackson's saying. Yeah, I, I am. That's, I'll that's mean exactly that and a lot of stuff about curses. <laughs> that's a good summary of my personality. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, 
Is that all that for that section? I think so. We can get to Holmes and Watson later. So this scene where they're contemplating with Jem takes place after Holmes has put an ad in the papers to try to find this man with the lost hat and lost goose so he can learn more about where it came from so he can figure out who took the thing because a man has been accused of it, the plumber, and Sherlock wants to make sure that that's, you know, not wrong. Um, the guy eventually shows up, and this guy's kind of a sad sack. Like, just yeah. everything's gone wrong in his life. He's, like, had to sell his books for booze money, which, oof. And, yeah, and Christmas stuff in general. Now, I owe you one last payment of eight pennies, eh? Struck it, Richard, with Mr. Baker. I, I chanced upon an acquaintance of sympathetic disposition. I, that is to say, I sold some of my books. Ah. Oh, not your books, Mr. Baker. Needs must, Mr. Windigate, and at this season of the year more than ever, we must not deprive those we love. Or even those to whom we are married. <laughs> yeah. He works like the um, museum, I think. Yeah. And Holmes gives him a new goose and goes try to find the other one. And so we have this like plot bit where he goes to like this inn that had kind of a like subscription fee for a goose. And then that uh, from that inn, they, they got it from this one vendor. And there's this great bit where the goose vendor is resistant to explaining where he got the geese from for unclear reasons. And so Holmes kind of immediately starts up this whole like, oh, we had a bet on that thing. And Watson eventually catches up with it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and they eventually find out that these geese came from um, Mrs. Oakshot, who lives mm-hmm. uh, wherever, wherever. As they're walking away to go find her, this guy shows up, and it's the same guy who was the bellhop at the at the opening scene, who was also trying to find where these geese came from, and the supplier is noticeably unhappy about having to answer these questions. Holmes goes to talk to this bellhop, and that's where we get into the the finale but we'll get to that in a bit first i want to talk about how much fun watson is having with this whole so we good. made a bet thing yeah like because david burke is like he plays it kind of like what what bet holmes oh yes the bet the bet yeah and then it means like pay up holmes like i'm not telling you ah uh, well then the bet's off what bet Ah, what bet? Well, I'm always ready to back my opinion in the matter of fouls. And I have a fiver with my friend here that the bird that I chose is country bread, right, Watson? What? Oh, 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 yes, yes, absolutely. Ah, you've lost your money then, because it's town bread. It is nothing of the kind. I say it is. I don't believe you. Come on, pay up, Holmes. What do you think I wouldn't know, me who's been handling fowl since I was a nipper? I'll tell you, all the birds that went to the offer were town bred. <laughs> You'll never make me believe that. Come on, come on, do the decent, Holmes. Like, immediately, because I love the, at the, so in the story, um, Holmes figures out through some means, it, it, I can't remember the exact quote, and even then, it's something that I didn't quite understand the terminology. I think that somebody at the time would understand, like, a the pink plug in his pocket or something yeah. that didn't make much sense to me. And I like in the show, they put a clearly folded up sports page of the newspaper 
like in his coat pocket, like a thing that I want to say if you're looking for it, you'll notice that. But it was a, a, Ooh, small, nice. a small update or more visual thing of like he's got the sports pages in his pocket. And Holmes says basically like once it becomes clear that that guy doesn't want to talk to them, Holmes basically bets him a sovereign that he's wrong about his own geese. And he says later, like, I could have offered him $100 and he wouldn't have told me. But, you know, if once I made it a bet, then he would be, was too willing to tell me whatever I wanted to know. Mm-hmm. But I do love because they're about to leave. And then the guy call, in, the sh- in the show called him was like, what about that man's five pounds? And then Holmes was like, and pulls out. And Watson is grinning ear to ear at this. And like, fair play on him. He does immediately give him the money back. Like, without being asked, but, like, I just love the look on his face. He's just so happy. I'm a little sad. I kind of wanted, like, the, like, a playful banter thing where Watts like, no, this is mine. I, I won the bet. Yeah, like. Because, like, well, I mean, five pounds isn't that much to these guys. No. But it, 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 it is, like, a good, a good nature thing that, like, Watson gives it back and this, like, this trust established. But it could have been a fun little comedy bit there. But, yeah. yeah. And, the, like, the, the bet thing is also in the story, but they play up the whole, like, two-man con aspect yeah. of it for the show which is the show's always really good at that kind of thing yeah i like that watson wasn't immediately like savvy i mean i think mm-hmm. that i feel like you exaggerated a little bit too much how like slow he was on the uptake Watson holmes is like our bet right watson he's like oh what oh yes our bet like kind of immediately but he, there was a second of like what but i right. do like that he just jumped in and was like yes anding the bit I yada 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 past a lot of the stuff because there's there's not that much that's important. Yeah, like it's most just like them finding a lead, following up the lead, going to the next lead, which isn't bad per se, but it's not interesting. Yeah, it's not like there's not much to, to unpack there beyond just like this is Holmes doing Holmes stuff. I spent a really long time trying to figure out if like the the Goose Club thing that the inn does, where like you pay. I know eight shillings a week and at the end of that like period you get a goose was like Mm -hmm. a financially if there was like some some scam happening there if it was like a this is actually like not a good deal if you're in this club or if it's just like this innkeeper is a decent chap who's making easy get goose or whatever sure what does he get out of this but then i was like oh this isn't going anywhere i can stop bothering with it like that bartender also the um mr henry baker who owns the haddon goose in question we get this flashback of him talking to that guy and because when he comes in to get his goose and he's like oh yeah you know i wanted to get the wife something for christmas and blah 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 and blah blah blah. i had to sell some of my books and he's very sad and the bartender's like oh no not your books that must have been like really hard for you he's like yeah 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 blah blah he's like so i think i'll have a large glass of whiskey and some beer and the, the fucking bartender charges him full price he's like that's a very sad story you just told me but it's gonna be full price please <laughs> to be fair he he's a bartender he, i know if a bartender gave a discount for every sad person who walks into his bar right. he would never actually make any money and i would agree with you on that wholeheartedly except for when it shows that guy leave later he comes out and gives the um homeless woman on his step like a free beer that's fair and now i'm not trying to play like down on your luck olympics it's not a contest. Like, both of them are having a tough time. It was just, like, they had this, what seemed like a very genuine, empathic moment of, like, that's very hard on you, and that must have been very tough. And, like, I'm impressed that you did this so that, you know, your wife could have some things for Christmas, etc., etc. But I am going to need you to just go ahead and pay full price. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And I'm not, um, like, going to die on this hill 
just berating the bartender. It was just a, a weird scene to me of like, what the hell? Just like, get him a break. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I'll admit that Henry Baker, the the guy who sold his books, is kind of, I don't want to say he's like a, a pathetic person, but he's kind of like, because of his age and because of how alcoholism works, I, I feel like he's not going to have much of a turnaround. Like, this is a, a nosedive that's going to keep going down. Sure. Yeah. I, like, I really thought they were going to give him the thousand pounds. Because I, oh, I know, like, sure. nowadays, if the police find something that's missing, they're legally not allowed to claim the reward because mm-hmm. they're the police. I don't know when that was instituted or anything like that, but I was like, I don't think he can collect the reward. Like, maybe Holmes and Watson could and give him most of it and some to the other guy who bought the goose, it's, you know, whatever, but... Who does get the reward in the end? Do we know? The, uh, in the show, I think it's Peterson, the, huh, the police odd. officer, because yeah. he just keeps repeating a thousand pounds with a starry-eyed look. thousand pounds? thousand pounds. thousand pounds. thousand pounds. And they're, the way that Holmes and Watson react and treat him when he does that is like, yeah, you're going to get the money. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, I feel like Henry Baker probably needs it more, but also I, I don't know if he would spend it well. No, I, yeah, I agree yeah. with that. Like, six of one, I think, half dozen the other. For sure. And I might also be, like, projecting a bit, so, yeah. I like the bit with um, when Henry Baker shows up at Baker Street, and Holmes is like, I'm, we had to eat your goose. I'm sorry, but we bought a new one pretty much just like it. And he's like, oh, that's great. And Holmes is like, of course, we have kept the feathers, legs, crop. And so on, of your own bird, if you so wish. Which, they keep bringing that up. It is the pouch under a bird's chin. Uh. Or, hold on. Let me actually look this up, because I have it written down. Uh, so the crop is a pouch in a bird's gullet where food is stored and prepared for digestion. Mm. So it's kind of like the waiting room for the stomach <laughs> in birds. And Holmes is like, we have all that, if you want it. Which is a weird thing to say, like... Obviously, he's trying to see if he knows that the the gym was in there. Mm. And Henry Baker's like, I don't know why I'd want that unless it's like a weird souvenir of the adventure I had with those guys trying to beat me up. And that's how Holmes yeah. knows that he's not the guy. But like, it was what a weird setup. It's also like, what if he had wanted that for some reason? Because Holmes does not have that. He doesn't have the bird. So I'm not sure what he was going to do with that. If yeah. he was like, oh yeah, I love having bird feet. I, <laughs> mm. I stew them. You know what? Don't knock stewed bird feet until you've tried it. I won't. I like that you. I like that twice now you've looked for that cereal bowl you were eating out of as if you were going to pretend to eat st- stewed bird feet. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, speaking of stewed bird feet, let's yep. talk about mm-hmm. the bellhop. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's the best segue of the season. Yeah, well, he kind of looks like someone who would eat stewed bird feet if you made him. Yeah, he looks. He just kind of looks like stewed bird feet. A little bit. And this guy's having an affair with uh, the maid at the start of the episode. And I thought this mm-hmm. was going to be like just some random, like, wacky thing. Oh, they're, they're having an affair. It's uh, some upstairs-downstairs bit or whatever. But no, it turns out that she's ostensibly uh, convincing him to steal this jewel so they can run away and be rich somewhere. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's they're actually in love and she really wants them to go, like, have a nest egg somewhere or if she's conning him and like once she has the money she'll drop him and go and start like a preparatory school in australia or whatever probably that one yeah they don't really specify it and like they leave it a little ambiguous because it's kind of 
it lets you wonder without without demonizing this character too much. And ostensibly, it doesn't matter, right? Whether or not she's gonna take the money and run to Australia to start a preparatory school, which she is. <laughs> yeah, and it goes badly for her. Um, anyway, so the bellhop stole the jewel, and he figured they'd search him eventually. So he goes to his sister, the same lady who sold all these geese to the guy at the market that Sherlock was running the bet thing on earlier. And he's like, hmm, I gotta hide this. I'll put it in this goose and make the goose swallow it. And then just take the goose home with me and eat it, and then that'll be a way to hide the whole thing from the police so I don't get found out. Decent plan. However, he loses track of which goose it was and takes the wrong goose home. And then that one goose just goes to uh, Mr. Henry Baker, and that's how it wound up where it is. Holmes decides to let this guy go, figuring that he, you know his experience will hopefully have like scared him straight. Maybe I am committing a felony, but I may be saving a soul. Send him to jail now, you make him a jailbird for life. And Watson's like, I must confess, Holmes, to being a little surprised. But they go to get the plumber out of jail so he can go home to his family for Christmas, and, and that's good. And uh, that's about it. So there are two things. One, we didn't mention this in the first bit, or in the second part of the synopsis, but after the blue carbuncle is, like, Holmes has it in hand, uh, Mrs. Hudson brings in their dinner, and they want to go follow up a few ends, and so Holmes looks at Watson and says, Well, then so much Mr. Henry Baker. He obviously knows nothing of the matter. Ah, Mrs. Hudson. Watson, do you need nourishment? Not particularly. Splendid. Mrs. Hudson, we shall turn dinner into supper, and we will follow up this clue while it is still hot. Which is more than the supper will be. Watson's not hungry. Yeah. It's, it's Character growth. that weird food bit that they kept doing, and I like that it's like the payoff of all the all the scenes across the season where Watson's like hungry. It's the in the finale, he's not hungry, and then at the end, they as you mentioned, they sit down to their Christmas supper, and Watson goes, Holmes, I cannot <laughs> contemplate eating while John Horner is still on remand. Now, do you suppose that Brad Street or one of his colleagues might still be at their desks? You're quite right, Watson. Come, let's go. He turns down dinner. <laughs> like, yeah. Good on you, Watson. And that's a really, like, solid thing, too. Like, hey, we, we shouldn't eat while well, this guy could be free. That's a that's a really decent Watson bit. The kind of... Sherlock has solved the mystery, so it doesn't seem as stressed about it. Yeah, I mean, it's... The, he solved the mystery, and it, he doesn't need to worry about it or think about any of the facts of it anymore. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Sherlock letting this guy go, even though he stole the thing? I'm fine with it. I mean, mm. as I've mentioned many times in the season before, he lets people get away with murder because right. it was... I, I keep trying not to say because it was just. It was because that was justice. I don't know. I don't care for the take of the lines where he in the show where he says, I don't work for the police. I must confess, Holmes, to being a little surprised. I am not retained by the police to supply their deficiencies. Because, like, he says it very forcefully. I think more of, like, not to convince himself he made the right decision, but it's like he made this this decision to let the guy go and then is, like, kind of talking himself through his reasoning. And in the show, he's, like, almost, like, yelling at Watson because Watson's like, you you let him go. And Holmes is like, I don't work for the police! And he's, like, yelling. And I don't I don't care for that take as much, but I, I, I'm fine with him letting the guy go. I think he's right. I think that 
he says in the story that the he's so scared right now that there is no way he's going to do that to himself again. But if we send him to prison, he's basically just going to get out and do it again. For yeah. like the rest of his life, he's going to be a jailbird. So That's pretty fair. Like their recidivism is a whole thing. And in this society, especially, and even now still, like if you have a criminal conviction, it can be really hard to get a job. Mm-hmm. And this guy doesn't have a lot to work from anyway, so it's not like he would be okay. So yeah, Holmes isn't wrong that he would probably, the prison isn't what this guy needs. But I love that like they have this moment and it's this very like kind of serious moment of Holmes. Like I don't work for the police and if I'd send him to jail, you know, he'd just, as soon as he got out, he'd do something, they'd send him back. Like I basically, he would be a criminal for life. This way, I'm sure he's, he's on the straight and narrow, it'll be fine. And Watson looks not necessarily unconvinced but is kind of making up his own mind and maybe he disagrees but he's not gonna like make a big stink about it and then mrs hudson comes in and they're both like supper and they start like laughing they don't do they don't both throw their hands in the air and yell supper but like immediately they're like laughing and smiling and best friends again and like pouring wine for dinner and i don't know it's just this weird i got whiplash on that scene of how hard they went from this like very thoughtful ending to like yeah i think it wouldn't wouldn't be so bad if jeremy brett hadn't kind of gone up to 11 with the whole like i don't work for the police the clipping thing Mm -hmm. so yeah but no i'm fine with him being like letting the guy go for sure so i'm very sad we don't find out what holmes and watson got each other for christmas i feel like that would be a really nice thing well you see holmes actually shaved his all his hair off to buy watson a new watch chain and watson sold his watch to buy holmes a comb for his hair of course the classic three gift of the magi i was gonna say that classic uh, mickey mouse uh, cartoon but that works too that's that's the basis of that cartoon and basically every christmas story like that yeah but that's not what we're talking about on this podcast no we're talking about holmes and watson and how i like that they like have christmas together they have like christmas goose and everything it's, it's nice i deeply love that holmes and watson are legitimately friends in this not like not just acquaintances, not just yeah. allies, not whatever. They're, they legitimately enjoy spending time with each other. It's cool. Yeah, I, I think that the Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law one, there is, like, I can see a general loyalty. And they're like, I know that they, they bicker a lot, and Jude Law's Watson seems to basically not want to be there anymore. But I can see that, like, usually, like, by the end of the movie when the chips are down, there is, like, a, I don't know, there is a connection there. But I feel like, yeah. by and large they don't play Holmes and Watson as like actually best friends mm-hmm. in a healthy friendship as well. Like, and we've touched on the, the BBC Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock. So I'm not going to just keep ragging on it, but like that one, you know, that's not necessarily a healthy friendship. This is just like two best friends solving crimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh. I think it's, it's cool that they can go from like having arguably a a division in their in their morality because i think watson would have probably turned this guy in because he broke the law mm-hmm. um and they have that like differentiation of um like the right thing and the legal thing and i think they can go from having that disagreement to still being friends and having dinner and all that jazz and i think we'll see that change in watson over time because again there if, if my memory serves in some of the ones where he lets murders go watson's like yeah, that's fair. Like, actually kind mm-hmm. of agrees with him. I think it was... I don't know. I think because this was maybe the first time we've seen it, it was more of, like, surprise that Holmes yeah. let him get away with it. 
I'm interested to kind of see how how they kind of handle this in the future. For sure. Um, before we go, I do want to just give a shout out to the Countess of Morkar, who is kind of more of a. She never really shows up in the story. No. She's kind of um, a background character, but here we kind of get a few scenes of her being this, like, this irascible old turkey of a lady, like just very unhappy with everything around her. And how dare you expect me to put up a reward for making you do your job to find this jewel? But you still haven't found the jewel. Not yet, no, my lady. But we do have the man Horner. Or have a clue as to its whereabouts. Contrary to popular fiction, my lady, there is very little honor amongst thieves. And even less with the right inducement. Why should I offer a reward? In my experience, and it is considerable, I have found that the offer of a reward would very soon set the greedy cat amongst the criminal pigeons. Well? I should be very surprised if I did not gain a result within 24 hours. How much? People who work for her seem like, very scared of her. I mean, not scared enough to not try to rob her. Right. Which might also come from resentment. Who knows? I wrote in my notes, of course, there's a Scrooge character because she just seems very, like, yes. over it and bah humbug. And then when it comes to money, she's like, why should I pay money to get back what was stolen from me? Yeah. that You know, now that I think about it, I don't think we've... We rarely get female Scrooges. Like, there's that one episode of Kim Possible, but that's about it. Everybody go check out that one episode of Kim Possible. So, yeah, I think that that is it, then, for the Blue Carbuncle, unless... Do we even have a contender for Must Clash? Not week? really. The The Inspector had a decent one, but it wasn't, like, anything exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know what? I'm going to call it... I'm going to give it to David Burke this week. Oh, yeah. Sure. We never have, and if there's just... No one really has anything interesting, let's just let David Burke have a week. I mean, he still loses to the King of Bohemia, obviously. Yeah. Which also means that the King of Bohemia is this season's Must Clash winner. And so he is no longer eligible, and we'll start a new Must Clash next season. Correct. Next season, episode one, we'll figure out the winner, and then they'll go up against episode two, and so on. And I think at the very end of the run of this podcast, we will pit all of the season champions against each other in a no-holds-barred, no-handle-barred, no. You tried. No-holds-barred contest for the ultimate Ace Study and Granada Must Clash champion. Now that we have settled the business of this episode i'd like to jackson talk with you just briefly about this season kind of as a whole like a little wrap up of just thoughts uh, ideas questions we talked a little bit here and there about why these mysteries because they're out of order they've pulled from all across the holmes canon i mean the naval treaty and the crooked man are from just before the final problem uh scandal and bohemia and this one are from some of the first stories I just I'm interested in your thoughts on maybe why these specific six mysteries were chosen for a first season. I mean, there's probably a decent number of reasons that might be based on like what sets they had available, what kind of stories they wanted to tell, what stuck out to them. It might have just even so much as like um, like hey, everybody involved, pick your favorite kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think also each of these stories has a very different genre to them. So Scandal and Bohemia is a wacky sex farce. Dancing Men is a is like a, a tense mystery thriller. Navy, mm-hmm. Naval Treaty is a political drama. Solitary Cyclist is a more homespun thing. Crooked Man and Speckled Band are both a little more 
the special man especially is a very gothic story but crooked man too a little bit um crooked man is almost more like mon not monster movie it definitely has that kind of like hunchback of notre dame uh phantom yeah. of the opera kind of vibe of this like this person who is at the edge of personhood i guess yeah for you know for better or worse um and then blue carmichael is a kind of charming christmas theft narrative not particularly intense uh and i think they they open and close with these relatively calm things but there is definitely like more intensity as you get into the middle i think they did a good job of like here is a variety of stories we could tell it's not always going to be this kind of thing mm-hmm. and that was a good choice for i guess for letting viewers know that they're never going to be sure what they're going to get yeah i would say that i agree um Especially with that, with the idea of kind of doing a breadth of stories, rewatching these, I think it was probably trying to keep the budget down to some extent, because if you look at it, these stories specifically really only take place in like two or three like locations. Mm-hmm. It'd be very easy to just like, like a scandal in Bohemia is pretty much at Baker Street and then Irene Adler's house. Sorry, Irena Adler's house. And then... Baker Street again. And the Dancing Men is mostly in Derbyshire or Baker Street. And, I don't know. It, it seems like a way of we only need to film in a couple of places. Solitary Cyclist, I mean, they could knock out most of that in a day on that one stretch of road. Yeah. Like, it's just a way of doing this and going forward and trying and while well, not like needing a huge budget because I could see trying to pitch, even in the 80s, like a very very close adaptation of the Sherlock Holmes stories as being something that inspires a lot of confidence in producers and network executives to be like, yes, here is all the money. And I'd be interested to see going forward if the production value goes up because this was a hit. I mean, this was, they went for 10 years almost making episodes. So, right. And I will say that while they did, you're definitely right. They were being very economical with their sets. They also, I think spent the money on, on having really good actors for a lot of things. I can't mm-hmm. think of anybody who uh, who I think was really badly miscast. I guess maybe that one guy from the Naval Treaty. Percy but... Phelps, the main guy. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, they mostly had these you know, pretty good actors here, so that was a good thing. Um, and they often had, when, when they really needed to show something really like dramatic, like the some of the war scenes from the crooked man mm-hmm. or some of like the high society stuff in scandal and bohemia, they shelled out that extra bit that they were saving for, from having yeah. fewer scenes by from having fewer sets and made it really count where it needed to. I could, I would also bet that they being that it was a British show, there is probably a plethora of period appropriate props and sets and costumes and stuff just floating around the BBC. Cause I know that, not to stereotype, I just know that a lot of period type shows get made in England. Oh, for sure. So they probably have like that huge glittery throne the King of Bohemia was sitting on was probably not just bought and or made for this show. Right. I'm sure they found it elsewhere. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think probably the main thing is the breadth of stories. I just in rewatching it, noticing how few places they go, I, I figured that might be a reason as well. For sure. Uh, so uh, your take on the season as a whole. What did you think? Looking at it as a, a six-episode entity, not necessarily each episode-to-episode, but as a whole season, what did you think? Um, I mean, it's, it's a little hard to say because we're watching all seven of these episodes, like, rec- you know, watch, record, watch, record, as opposed mm-hmm. to watching it as a whole thing. But sure. I think I would definitely enjoy this as a season if I was, like, just... 
like if I had a flu or whatever and just wanted to like put on a thing while I re- you know, recovered on the couch or whatever, this would be a really good choice for that because there's a lot of variety in what you're seeing and the stories. Apart from the Naval Treaty, they're all pretty compelling stories, so that's that's really fun. And you can kind of see them having fun with the stories they're telling, so I think it really works as a cohesive thing. I think the variety of the stories was a really good choice. I agree. I think that once you kind of know that there's not going to really be an arc to the season, it's really just episodic mysteries. I, I feel like had I not told you at the beginning that there wasn't really an arc, then I think your reaction might have been different at the end, kind of like disappointed that it didn't go anywhere. And I'm not, I'm not like patting myself on the back. I'm just saying that like as a season as a whole, it's very much just kind of a bundle of fun mysteries. Yeah. And so there's not really... Lately, TV has kind of tended towards having, like, your arc narratives. Mm -hmm. Apart from, like, your NCISs and your CSIs, Mm -hmm. you don't really have a lot of drop-in, drop-out kind of things. A lot of stuff tends to be much more, there's a through line. And so this is an older model of television production that isn't reliant on streaming services to make sure that everybody's up on every week's plot points. So it was nice to look back at an element of television storytelling that we don't really have as much anymore, mm-hmm. where every episode is expected to more or less stand on its own merits. Well, the good news is there's like 37 more of these to come. Awesome. <laughs> Some of them are TV movies, so. Yeah. Uh, and then my last question, I feel like we should end the season wrap-up on the question we've asked ourselves every week. Watson and Holmes, what do you think, as a season... As the season wraps up, what are your thoughts on our good detective buds? Pretty good. I mean, like they're 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 a great pair. Like every mm-hmm. episode um, on its own is really good. I if they had any kind of an arc, I kind of wish there had been like more of an arc where Watson is more and more likely to spot clues or make inferences as the time goes on. That isn't really a thing here, but like, I think apart from that, like it's not it's not bad. It's just they're. Because they are they have such good chemistry and they're really well cast, I mm-hmm. kind of wish they pushed that further. But you know, here we are. We'll see that more in the Hardwick era because um, the apocryphal... Apocryphally? How do you... Apocryphally, uh, Hardwick kind of insisted on getting more of Holmes's lines. Oh, interesting. Now, again, I, I, I'm not saying that is true. That's what I've heard is that he insisted that he get more things to say and do. So I think we'll see Hardwick's Watson will... I mean, that's season three at the earliest. But mm. I think we'll see him making more inferences and legitimate deductions and working in the mystery more than we will in the David Burke era. And that's that's the reason I've heard why. I know that he does have more things to say and do, whether mm. or not it's because Hardwick insisted that he get more things to say and do is... A question for history. Right. Well, that'll be fun to find out, but we've got a while before that. Well, then. That's been season one of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes from uh, Granada Television. You know the plugs. We've done them enough. Yeah. I think. So uh, I guess it's goodbye from me until next season. And goodbye from me as well. Hope we'll join us next time on The Copper Beaches. We're rare to meet thy go.